This episode is sponsored by a patron of the Met Orchestra Musicians. Since the shuttering of the Metropolitan Opera in New York for public health concerns, Met Orchestra Musicians has remained committed to connecting its global audience through music. They firmly believe that music and art offer solace, inspiration, and an affirmation of our humanity. Visit metorchestramusicians.org to offer support. On this episode, we have Christine Lawton. Christine's family hails from Jamaica, and she was born and raised in New Jersey. After attending the University of Delaware, she sought ways to pursue her passion for broadcasting. She ultimately decided to attend law school at USC, and after a brief stint in a law firm, she joined Disney. From there, she was at NBC Universal and then moved to Fox, working on innovations in media. She is now working at a law firm again. Christine, thanks so much for being on our show. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Love to go back. Um, you grew up on the East Coast. Um, share with us uh, about that and what uh, childhood was like. Sure. Um, it, it's kind of funny thinking about growing up on the East Coast because both my parents are essentially, you know, first generation. Well, I'm a first generation American. They're immigrants. And so it's kind of like, how did I end up in South Jersey? Of all places? <laughs> and <laughs> um, where did they immigrate from? They, they came from Jamaica. So okay. both sides of their family had been on the island for generations. Wow. And um, my, my dad, actually, he happened to be born in New York City. Oh. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> with the first, uh, well, the 2016 election, when that term anchor baby was being um, <laughs> used, I was like, oh my God, dad, that's what you are. Wow. <laughs> So my dad was born in 1929 in New York because her, his parents, you know, decided to, you know, wanted to see if they could, you know, make a better living in, in wow. the United States. So they went over and my dad happened to be born there in February of 1929. Wow. And then uh, the stock market crash hit yeah. in October of that yeah, year. that's right. They hung on for a few years, but then went back to Jamaica. Yeah, so he was born in the United States, but then he spent un until he was about 15 Wow. In, in Jamaica. So anyway, they both, my, my mother was born and raised in Jamaica and she oh, went oh. to uh, Canada. So anyway, they kind of got together in New York City and we ended up in New Jersey. So, um, and, and my growing up there was, you know, pretty, pretty unique, I think, because it was a pretty ethnically, culturally diverse um, neighborhood even though most of it was white but still I mean we had you know Jewish friends and Irish friends and Lithuanian friends and German and Italian and my best friend growing up across the street uh, her her father was from Colombia and her mother was from Pennsylvania so it was it was you know kind of neat and uh, yeah. I'm one of three kids older brother younger brother and me and mom and dad that's great, eclectic grouping. But it, you shared just now with, that your father was born in 1929. So if I do the quick math, he's in his 90s. Yep. Which is phenomenal. Yep. Yeah. You have uh, come from a very good gene pool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm hoping. <laughs> I myself am 72. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I. I <laughs> I was doing some quick math again. I'm like, it's entirely possible. You're like, Dad would have been 19. I'm like, that's kind of... Really it's possible. 
Yeah, it's entirely uh, possible. Yeah. It didn't happen. <laughs> I think when you are 72, you're going to look great. So That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Well played, uh, Christine. But yeah, so no, they're they're doing great. And my mom my mom turns turns eighty five um this Saturday. So Oh wow. Well congrats yeah. to her. Um in fact you guys were planning a trip back east around your mother's birthday. Well actually they're they're they've moved to Sacramento and so ah, yeah, and that's I are right gonna go up there and visit them because we feel like we will never be as as um <laughs> as pure as we are now, since we've yeah. been, you know, quarantined for her birthday, we'll go yeah. and see her and then we'll start venturing out a little bit. Okay. No, yeah. that makes sense. And you'll see your precocious nephew while you're up there as well. Probably. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Probably okay. first, like, pie to me. <laughs> <laughs> At five years old, I'll be like, oh, okay. I, I believe you after the first six, I'm just like, okay, I'm going on faith here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's really great so um you decided to study at the university of delaware yep any yep. particular draw except it was close by uh yeah i mean kind of like uh okay i'll go there <laughs> so um i had gone to a summer camp in maryland for a lot of my childhood and uh had a great time, you know, met lots of great people. And, you know, these people were just their friends. And a lot of the, those people went to University of Delaware and like, okay, you know, it'll be a nice place to go. Yeah. Um, but it was not my first choice. Um, and my first choice was Boston University. I wanted to go there. And I, I think two things were going on. Um, number one, I have, you know, this older brother who, um, <laughs> He, he like won the immigrant, immigrant parents, uh, you know, lottery in that he got, he got accepted to Yale. Okay. And my parents are like, this is amazing. And we have to do everything we can do to send him to Yale. You right. know? And my parents weren't wealthy and still aren't wealthy, you know, and they, so I think, you know, they put as much of as they could into his attending Yale. And so I came along two years after and I think they're like, well, we don't really have a lot of money to send you, you know, to a school that's that expensive. Um, and I also really think that, and I haven't spoken with them about this, but I really don't think they wanted me going to Boston, you know, a place that that they regarded as a little, uh, a little more racially unsettled. You know, I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I really do think that they're like, mm, you know, Boston and you're like, it's kind of a racist town. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be good to have her stay home, you know, yeah. or closer to home. Sure, so. sure. Okay, okay. Um, uh, you did spend uh, some time abroad at the Sorbonne. I did, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. was fantastic. Um, because, you know, getting back to, to race, it, it is, and I, you know, like, for people like you and me, like you always get back to race. You kind of can't avoid it, right? Um, but the thing for me was, I mean, I was raised in this pretty, you know, white neighborhood, even though culturally it was pretty diverse. Um, but it was always very black or white. It's yeah. like if you are not, if you are not white, then you're black. And you know, to me, it was just confusing. 
because I knew who I was. And, and I was telling, I was relaying this story the other, <clears throat> the other day. Um, somebody, you know, is a woman of Asian descent and she's asked, you know, where are you from? And she says, I'm from Los Angeles. And they're like, no, no, where are you from? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, right, right. I get it. But for me, it was like, what are you? So mm -hmm. as early as like, you know, four or five years old, I can remember some, you know, playing, you know, in our driveways and stuff. And some little girl says to me, what are you? And I'm like, I, I don't know what that means, yeah, you know? Exactly. And, and then she says, well, are you black or are you white? And I remember like looking, going like, I'm, I'm that color. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> you know? And, and, it was really confusing. And of course, so as I get older, you know, it's like, oh, I get it right. If you're not white, then you're black. Yeah. And, but in my family, I knew that there were so many different colors in the rainbow, you know? Yeah, exactly. So it was just, it was weird. And, and it was also something that like you just accepted, right? It's like, okay, that's just how the world sees you. Yeah. But I went to France and I was like, oh, it's like there are lots of different ways that people can discriminate against yeah. each other you know and it's not white or black it's like oh you're from from you know ethiopia or you're right. from Albania, or you're it's or like algerian and... from, right exactly yeah. and so it's like oh you know so i got there and people are like oh you're american you're fabulous and it's yeah. like wait a second <laughs> you know i don't get to be in the club just because i'm american but they're like, yeah, you do, right? It's these people we don't like. And I was like, yeah. yeah. So it was a little, you know, mind blowing. No, just no. In that, you know, the particular form of prejudice yeah. is so culturally, you know, it's contextual. Yeah, exactly. It's driven by that. Yeah. I, mean, I remember when France won in 98 um, uh, the World Cup. And mm -hmm. uh, against the Arc de Triomphe, they had uh, like, uh, a Caucasian Frenchman. They had uh, um, Zinedine Zidane, who was of Algerian origin, and they had um, uh, someone from West Africa, I think Cameroonian origin, some French-speaking former colony. It may have been Senegalese. Yeah. Um, and like these are the three colors of our nation, and it was like that's so beautiful and moving and amazing. Like sport brought them together in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But unfortunately like the commonplace existence or interaction didn't really reflect that <laughs> no no <laughs> no exactly yeah so, I have an yeah it, it was just it was really interesting to you know because by then i think i was maybe 19 and i hadn't you know i'd been to jamaica for sure but i hadn't been to europe and it's like mm. oh wow there's a whole different way that you know there there are infinite ways in which people can discriminate against each other yeah no absolutely it's true it's so yeah. true did you know when you were studying at uh university of delaware that you were going to go into law school or maybe even prior to that no nope. no 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 other than like my parents kind of planting the seed way deep down in my brain like you are so argumentative you should be a lawyer <laughs> <laughs> and i was like you say argumentative like it's a bad thing i don't right. get it <laughs> all right, all right. okay so like uh, uh, it was like senior year or junior year decision. No, so you graduated and then later decided. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, because what I had wanted to do was get into um, broadcasting, and uh, um, you know while I was in school, I kind of realized. Well, 
Initially, I wanted to get in the music industry okay. in, in some kind of executive role. And I had this internship while I was in college and it just so uh, did not appeal to me. It just was like, this is not a for real business. Like it felt dirty. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, I'm not gonna do this. So then I broadcasting is what I wanted to do because, you know, I, I love learning. I'm incredibly curious about everything. And I thought this is great. You know, I can just go ask a lot of questions, you know, and, and that would be a fun life to have. But um, and by the time I graduated, um, I had figured out that it was much more of a beauty pageant and, and a popularity contest than I was uh, going to be successful at. And I just thought, you know, this is just not a game that I can win because I'm not going to play it. Yeah. And so when I, when I graduated, well, you know, now, you know, 2020 hindsight, it's like, you look at, you know, the, what Gretchen Carlson and the Megan Kelly's and things like that. And I kind of knew in my bones, that's what it was going to be like. Yeah. And I just like, I'm not doing it. And plus to get started, most of my, you know, um, my classmates who had graduated, you know, a year or two ahead of me to get their starts, they had to go to some small market mm -hmm. and those small markets were mostly in the South. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, there is something that's really never going to happen for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm never going to get hired. I'm never, you know, this is a, it's just an exercise in futility. And then, you know, I look and think of, you know, who are the kind of the non-white, uh, you know, broadcasters who've gone on to, you know, great things. There are a few, but like, you know, there's Connie Chung. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. You know, there's Oprah. Oprah, of course. You know, and it's, she started out as a, as a weathercaster in Maryland, wow. you mm -hmm. know, amazing, you know, but it's like, there's so few examples of these. People. There are. And the more some recent male ones come to mind: Lester Holt, mm -hmm. uh, Trevor Noah. Yeah, you know, but but like Lester um, Holt, man, he's been working at it forever. Yes. Right? And I mean, well, who was it? Um, the guy who got uh, caught for plagiarizing, Brian Williams. Oh right. Mm -hmm. Was in that role, and had that not happened, maybe right. Lester would have gotten his chance. Right. It's like, and, and now it's like this diminished, you know, news universe yeah. that that he operates in. Right. He, they're never going to give him that job when there were just you know three network news options. Right. Right. It's just like, who was the so? I, I was uh, like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Peter Arnett's. Uh, colleague during the Gulf War. Why is his name not coming to mind? I don't know. CNN reporter, CNN anchor. Well, there's um, Wolf Blitzer. There's. No, this was like the 90s, early 90s. Christina Monfort. She was CNN. Mm, no, it'll 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 come to be like three in the morning. So. Yeah. <laughs> By well, the time we have our wine evening, I'll know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think this is even more fascinating, uh, Christine, because you actually went to law school with an interest in media. Yeah, I did. I did. That's very interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, so how that all came together. So I graduated um, and I, I knew I was not going to work in my field. 
And so I moved back home, you know, for this summer and, and figured, well, you know, maybe I'll try getting a job in advertising or I don't know. And this summer camp that I'd gone to, um, I had maintained a, uh, a friendship and relationship with this guy that I dated this one summer. And he was then in California. And so there I am like with nothing to do. And you know, we'd started getting a little closer. And so he's like, do you want to come out and visit? And I was like, well, I am actually not doing anything. So why not? Yeah, nice. <laughs> so I took my little suitcase and off I went. And I ended up never coming home. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was I mean, a fruitful. Never coming home to live. Yeah, yeah, I know. Understood. Okay. So you actually applied to USC from California? No. So, well, yeah, well, from California. Yes, I did. Yeah. So, so what I did, because I still, I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, well, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll find some little job. And I was, you know, basically a glorified secretary mm. at um, the Institute, well, it's called the Center for Research on Women and Gender, or just Center for Research on Women. Uh, at Stanford University. Okay. Oh, and, wow. So yeah. So I was, you know, helping this office run its, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm taking phone messages and I'm, you know, maintaining a database and I'm helping with events that they put on and stuff like that. And it was run by the, the executive director of it was a woman named Deborah Rohde, who's a professor at the law school, Stanford Law School at the time. And I don't know, I just kind of like, there was a little more awareness about law and, you know, I just started thinking about it. And so it was over, I want to say probably within six months of getting there and thinking, I, I knew I had to do something else. Yeah. Like I couldn't be a glorified secretary my entire career. Right. I needed to figure it out. Yeah. But I described it as an epiphany. It just kind of all came to me like, oh, yeah. I could do law school and I could practice in, you know, an area of like media and entertainment that I like. And that way, you know, I, it won't be, it'll be more of a meritocracy, right? It won't be a beauty pageant. It won't be a popularity contest. It'll be like, how well do you write? How well do you persuade? How well do you argue? <laughs> <laughs> and so I just said, yeah, I'll do that. So yeah, I, I applied from, from California. Okay. Fantastic. And so uh, in graduating law school, you started at, uh, am I pronouncing this right? Rhinus and Rhinus? Rhinus and Rhinus. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, uh, you were there for a short period of time and it almost looks like Disney was one of their clients and then you went to the client? No, no. It didn't happen that way. Okay. No, no. <laughs> it was just far, far more just like dumb luck. Uh, Rhinus and Rhinus was great. Most of their clients were in the apparel industry. And so there was a fair bit of intellectual property that went along with that. Wow. So trademark and copyright. And I really like that. And, and then, you know, that applies to, you know, any kind of content that is going to be on TV or, you know, film, stuff like that. So, and I, I definitely had an interest in it in, um, in law school. Um, so, uh, I, I worked there for a couple of years and it was in litigation. And as, as argumentative as my parents might have believed I was, I was like, I am not that argumentative. <laughs> like, this is not for me. <laughs> um, and plus there's a lot of, you know, as a very junior lawyer, there's just a lot of, of it's called, you know, law in motion and discovery. It's just like sure, a lot of yeah. form 
stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And I didn't, I really didn't have enough experience in law to understand kind of the traje trajectory and how much more interesting it could get. Okay. So, you know, my naivete basically, because now I look back, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a lot about litigation that I really, I like, there's a lot of strategy to it and, you know, a lot of really smart people and interesting people. But so I decided I needed to leave. And um, so back in the day when people had, uh, you know, classified ads that they put in, you know, magazines and newspapers and stuff like that, I found this ad that said, we're looking, <clears throat> excuse me, for a lawyer with two to four years experience, either as, you know, in litigation or in transactional law, which basically describes every lawyer who has worked, <laughs> right? So right, it's like, right. Everyone, they weren't looking for someone who was in labor and employment or in, you know, intellectual pride. Just like if you're breathing and you have a law degree and you can hold down a job, we're looking for you. I'm like, great. <laughs> so um, I applied to this job and ended up getting an interview. And I, it was in the dubbing group. And oh. that was, you know, all the animated films uh, that Disney does, of course, they're dubbed into every foreign languages, right? Yeah, right. Which I thought was really neat. And the guy who was running it, he said, I want someone who could be here, uh, like, and, and run the database and run the office and take care of all the contracts. And I'm going to be out like six months of the year, negotiating contracts and stuff. And, and I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. I don't know what goes into this. And I remember saying to him, this job sounds great, but uh, I think you need someone who has more experience than I do. Um, and so when you find that person, I'd love to work for that person. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember him kind of like sitting back and going like, like, did she just say she doesn't want the job? You know, in that, that he didn't say that, but he just kind of went, well, I believe I will make that decision, you know, but thanks so much. <laughs> I was like, okay. And, I, and I'm really like, I, I was petrified that I would go in there and just fall flat on my face. I was just like, I am not prepared for this. And I could have been wrong, but that was my gut, you know? And at a point where like, I would have chewed off my left arm to work for Disney. Sure. But I, was like, yeah. I don't want to work for Disney and fall on my face. You sure, know? absolutely. So anyway, he thanked me very much. And, and um, what he ended up doing is that he went to his boss and he said, I, I met this person. She seems really bright. She's probably not good for the dubbing group, but you've got an entry level lawyer position, in, you know, that you're trying to fill and maybe you should talk with her. And wow. so I went in and I talked with this guy and it seemed much more manageable. Like the, this boss would be there. You yeah. Know, yeah. 365. They wow. um, could be trained and, you know, there was, there were other people in the office who could train me as well. And so I ended up, you know, getting the offer and taking it, but it was like, amazing. It was amazing. No, Christina, I, I had just... no connections, you know, I, I didn't know anything about anything and somehow got it. You took a gamble and you were honest and 
facing the prospect that you may not get the job, but it was clearly the right thing to do. And it's just, it's so nice to hear that the universe took care of you in that yeah. example. Yeah. And uh, kudos to, to, to this gentleman who, who um, made that yeah. introduction. And, and every time it, I get a chance to talk about him, I do, and I sing his praises because, um, yeah, kudos to this gentleman. So he, he was at that time and still is, <laughs> a white Republican, conservative, Irish Catholic man, right? <laughs> and we could not have gotten along any better. I mean, he's just yeah. a person who, who is like, he believes in the individual, you know? That's and, you know, uh, if you're a person who is intelligent and works hard and has, a, you know, a you conduct yourself with integrity and you're willing to, you know, learn and make mistakes. He was all for you, you know, yeah. and I was just one of those lucky people. Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and he, he was incredibly supportive of me in every way, you know, my career, my family, you know, and, and generous with his time in, you know, showing me the ropes. And I just, I can't say enough good things about him. That's really great. Um, I'm just curious, when you uh, were looking through the, uh, um, those classifieds, you had made the determination that you wanted to go into a corporate setting? You didn't want to do the law firm? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. You wanted to so go in-house. Really targeting that. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh. Uh, well, it worked out well, because um, your next series of steps um, we're with some amazing media companies. Yeah. And so um, you spent some time at DreamWorks. Yep. Share with us about that. Was that also uh, IP related? Yeah, definitely. And and so, you know, again, talking about this boss of mine that I always like to say good things about. Um, so when DreamWorks was formed, I, you know, people might not remember, but it got formed, you know, through a series of really unpleasant events. Mm -hmm. uh, at Disney, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, uh, Michael Eisner, his kind of second in command was a, a man named Frank Wells, and Frank Wells died in a helicopter crash. Right. Um, and that uh, motivated Jeffrey Katzenberg to say, hey, I think I can take this job. And it was rejected, you know, wildly by Eisner. So Jeffrey forms uh, DreamWorks with uh, Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. Right. And so what happened is that there was this kind of exodus of a bunch of Disney executives from Disney to DreamWorks. And so I was part of, I was, I was part of maybe the second wave of people who, who left Disney. Right. Um, definitely not like the founding members, but within two years, I was, um, I was at, I was at DreamWorks and my boss had moved over to DreamWorks and he asked me to come along with him. Okay. Nice. Well, yeah. it's good when they do that. <laughs> yeah, really good when they do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was, uh, you know, I started in home video and I was doing, when I got to DreamWorks, I did home video plus syndicated television okay. plus uh, pay-per-view and subscription television. So HBO deals and stuff like that. Gotcha. So I got to kind of expand my, my um, purview a bit, which was great. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, uh, your next move took you to NBC Universal where you spent uh, over a decade, 12 years yeah. with them. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that was that was also, you know, you know, people that you meet in your professional career taking you along. So um, there was a guy I've worked with at Disney who was, um, he, he was, I think, a VP of operations when I met him and he had done terrifically well and ended up being president of uh, Universal Studios Home Video. And okay. so, and you know, we'd worked together at Disney and he asked me to come into nice. Universal, which is great. And it was like, it was, I think by the time I left, it was like Comcast, NBC, Universal. But when I started, it was just Universal and it was owned by Seagram. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are a number of corporate, you know, mergers and acquisitions while I was there. Right, but, right, yeah. Right. yeah. And so I got a chance to, to head up a department when I was there, which was really exciting to me. And so, you know, an opportunity to, uh, to manage people, to be a leader, um, to, to stretch myself in my own, you know, my own professional capabilities, right. which was, which was really good. And in addition, you know, it was a long period of time, I got to take on new, um, you know, kind of emerging technologies and yeah, sort of digital licensing work yeah, while you were yeah. there. Okay. Yep. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's like you clearly had the infrastructure and the brain power. They just needed to kind of deploy you in different settings. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And I was really interested in being deployed in different settings. You know, yeah. one of the things yeah. I loved doing the most was working with um, the studio technologists who are always, you know, kind of like there's a platform change. And right. They're big innovators. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, new devices and new displays and things like that, which I really liked. And then like content protection. How do you keep people from pirating your, your content? So I, I liked staying on top of that stuff. And, and you know, it, it's, it, it makes life more interesting, you know, when you're being pushed that way. And I just, I don't know, maybe I just have a short attention span, but I'm just like, I don't want to do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there an anecdote you can share with us about that era of like a particularly challenging negotiation, transaction, or maybe it's development of some technology that was uh, so new there wasn't a set way to address it? Yeah. Well, I, I would say, I mean, I don't know if it's an anecdote or, but it's an overall feeling about working in large corporations when there's a lot of innovation going on. Mm. Um, and, and I would say like that, that, that feeling is a sense of watching the innovation from the outside and knowing that it's going to be really hard to innovate from the inside, meaning, you're in a big corporation, a legacy, you know, legacy business. And it was a really interesting frustration, you know, and I, and I don't think I was alone in it. And it, and I think even, you know, at the highest echelons in the company, probably everybody felt that way, even though there was nothing really to be done about it. Right. Because when you're, when you are part of these large corporations, you have really specific, goals that are put at you you know it's like and i mean like put put on you like here is your financial target 
Right. Doesn't matter whether or not you've ever been within 20% of ever reaching that in the 10 years prior, right? And so it's hard yeah. to say, I get it. I'm supposed to make 20% more than I did last year, but I'm going to take this amount of budget and I'm going to put it into this little experiment that we're doing. Like you can't do that. Yeah. you know yeah, absolutely so so it, it it's it was a really interesting education in you know how do you kind of how do you innovate in smart ways when you're in these structures that that literally don't allow you to innovate yeah you know? yeah you have to do uh, a wraparound you have to fill check those boxes while also doing things on the side it's uh it's it's a challenge and i have to say christina um, one of the things i really love about your career is uh, you really highlight um um the internal entrepreneur sometimes called intrapreneur yeah yeah but you're trying to affect change you're trying to embrace where the trends are yeah. Um, but it's a different set of handicaps, but it requires some really nimble resilience and skill set that entrepreneurs who are on the outside also have to grapple with. And so it's, I, you know, we don't give enough attention to entrepreneurs. And I think, uh, you know, that I, I love highlighting that um, in this series yeah. because you're creating areas and, and working on new fascinating things and the, the things you've had to grapple with or deal with um, show all the great, the best traits of uh, entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's great to hear you say that because I've always felt that way about myself, um, you know, but I certainly haven't put myself for the most part in those very risky, you know, kind of high wire positions that true entrepreneurs do, right? You know, for most of my career, I've just had a paycheck, right? But well, I do think that way. Yeah, and I'm gonna reject your term of true entrepreneur because <laughs> I think you're as true an entrepreneur as somebody on the outside in some ways. I mean, it's, it's all contextual, right? Yeah. The person on the outside has certain freedoms that you didn't have. They did not have, that's for darn they sure. They make a decision, they can run with it. There's no, hierarchy there's no board there's no there's no political intrigue to go through. yeah exactly um yeah. you have to navigate all that and it's kind of like dealing with the bureaucratic infrastructure is an art form yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. i think you're as true an entrepreneur as someone who starts from scratch and takes a company thank you thank absolutely. you absolutely no no <laughs> uh i firmly believe that um, because I was really impressed with your, your next move to, to Fox. And mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, the home entertainment side was obviously a hallmark. And you had great expertise in that that you built in your career. Right. Um, but the, the innovation lab and uh, like the, the VR and AR yeah. work was, uh, was great to see. And then uh, yeah. share with us, what was that like? Yeah, um, there, there was all the studios have different personalities, right? And so Fox is one that had, you know, kind of ready, shoot, aim. <laughs> you know, and because of that, I think they were more inclined to do something like the Innovation Lab. And, it, you know, it's, it's a concept that's, you know, it, it's, put, it's, it's put into use in lots of different, you know, places. 
but it was something that, you know, I don't think Universal was the, of the mindset to be able to do. But Fox was like, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. And so it was really um, put in place to uh, be, be a place for Fox to kind of play around in AR and VR. And, and it, the way it was structured, well, for me, like, it was fun because there was an executive who was in charge of this and he had a plan as to how he was going to structure it and would take like sponsorship money from other organizations, which is brilliant, right? Because yeah. then you don't have to go get money from your own organization. So uh, we put this thing together and got some, some other, you know, corporate finance into it. And it enabled them to be kind of first out of the gate in terms of major studios in getting, you know, a piece of, you know, VR or AR out there. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was putting the structure together of this innovation lab and helping it run and then doing the work um, to, to get the intellectual property out there, right? And the first one was um, The Martian. So they oh, yeah. did a little piece on The Martian. Right. Yeah. And so it's all the, you know, the development of that piece, you know, who's going to do the AR, you know, how, how much does it cost? You know, how are we going to, you know, what devices are going to, is this going to be compatible with? So that, that was really cool, you know, both from forming the entity to getting the, the uh, you know, the intellectual property out there. Yeah. So it was fun. Oh, fantastic. Well, and um, in looking at your background, um, so you've, you've done some consulting, but uh, in many ways you've gone full circle. You're back at a law firm. Yes, back where I started. <laughs> this time you're a partner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell us about that transition and the desire to now be at a law firm. Yeah, well, it's funny because when I started talking with Nolan Hyman, my firm, um, you know, we were just put together by a former colleague of mine who said, oh, yeah, you know, based on what you're consulting in now, you should really go talk to these people. And I was like, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody, you know. Yeah. So we sit down and, and Wendy Hyman, my partner, said, you know, have you, have you thought about a law firm? Would you want to come to a law firm? I was like, nope. <laughs> nope, not interested. Uh, <laughs> She's like, why is that? And I'm like, look, I don't have any clients. You know, I've been in-house forever and all the clients I might have, you know, these big studios, they already have lawyers. They have in-house lawyers and they have outside counsel, like, and they're not coming with me. So like, it's not going to work, you know. Um, but she in particular and her partner, Michonne um, Nolan, they're like, this is the kind of entrepreneurial person we want, yeah. you know, because we do believe that our clients can benefit from from that kind of thinking. And a lot of the, their clients and clients that I will bring in, right, they're, they're not multi-billion dollar companies, right? Which means they don't have access to lots of different human resources, right? You don't have strat planning and you don't have, you know, uh, you know an accounting department and a you know, studio technology department. You don't have all those people. So they both were very, very, um, resolute in their belief that yes we need you we want you, you you'll like it here and our clients could really use what you have to offer and so it's like okay <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, and it really has been great. They are okay. Good. I was going to ask, have you been enjoying it? And yeah, definitely, definitely enjoying yeah. it. My my partners are terrific, and I've said this to their faces, so I will say this <laughs> in your podcast. Um, so it was founded by Wendy and Michonne, two women, and they quickly brought on a third partner named David Schneider. And I, I kind of, when we'd be in meetings together, I'd look at them and like, oh, I get this. Like, these, this is the three little bears. Because like, <laughs> Wendy, Wendy is like, we can do anything. Everything is great. Everything's going to be perfect. And Michonne's like, no, we're all gonna like fall down in a flaming fire pit. It's never gonna work. <laughs> and then David is like, I think there's kind of a middle ground here. Yeah, the middle, that's great. Yeah, and, but they, they really, fall? pardon? Where do you fall? Where do I fall? I, I don't know yet. I mean, I'm kind of that observer still in, in a good way. And I guess, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what nursery rhyme storybook uh, title I would call us now, but um, what watching the three of them communicate did for me was give me this real sense of, of um, understanding and trust because you could have a completely you know crazy idea or something that your partner really, really did not agree with. And I found that these three would always find a way to be kind to each other, to listen to each other, and to find a path forward, you know? And so now I think I'm just part of that mix. Yeah, yeah, that's ideal. Yeah, uh, yeah. And in some ways, it's, uh, it almost feels like intuitively the two original partners sort of, and, uh, and like having a counterbalance. Yeah, yeah. I think they do. I think they're self-aware enough that they're like, yeah. you know, I know everything's always, you know, my hair's always on fire. I know that, you know, yeah. and I know that my head's always in the cloud and, you know, I, I, I see way past my abilities, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah. so they're really aware. That, that's fantastic. You know, um, on your LinkedIn profile, you talk about your career and, and uh, how it, within law, it's been very IP focused. Mm -hmm. um, and you describe yourself being a legal, transactional, and business model innovator. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we could tease that out a little bit. I mean, it makes sense given all that you've done, uh, mm -hmm. but we'd just like to hear it in your words. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think is, well, the thing that I think is the hallmark of my career is that I, I take companies to places they've never been before. So there are places where there are not set rules, there, are not, there isn't set language, there isn't you know, a dictionary of, of terms. Right. You know, they're always trying to move forward and in that is you know, kind of an empty space, a white space. Right. And it's scary, right? Because you don't know if you're gonna fall off a cliff or you know, um, you know, if there's ground underneath you. Right. And so, that's really what I think is my, you know, UVP, my unique value proposition is that I'm really willing to go there and to put myself in, in the headspace that lets me think about how, you know, what are the many different ways that this could turn out, right? Yeah. And then what are the many different ways I haven't even thought of and I'll never be able to think of? Right. And how do I, how do I best protect, um, you know, this company from the unknown? 
and how do we communicate really well about you know what we want to do on both sides so that we have a clear understanding right uh, and that understanding is like things will go wrong you know they will go wrong but we have an understanding about how we'll, we'll even deal with them you know so it's this kind of like I want to get you to this new place and if 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 I can do my job well enough I will craft business models and you know license agreements and understandings between the businesses that you can do it with a high degree of confidence that you're going to be okay and you're going to make money that's fantastic no i really love that thank you for uh, walking us through that um it's just it's a marvel to me how unique this is because uh obviously uh the deal business that i've been involved with i've had interactions with many of your peers yeah. uh, in the legal profession and there, there's always this and, and oftentimes we reach out to them for that sense of security and what's safe how do i get protected uh, and here you are foraying into these areas that don't really have that. There's not a lot of uh, precedent case law in some of these areas that you're exploring. And so, uh, again, just really commend that entrepreneurial spirit, that innovative sense. Yeah. And, Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, it's been absolutely phenomenal. Um, you've uh, found some time, um, even with, with raising two daughters. I understand you're on the board of I Have a Dream Foundation. Yeah, I actually, I, I stepped off of that board at the end of 2019, but I had been on for a long time and I was serving as vice chair of, uh, of the organization. And, you know, what it really got down to was this sense of, I, I want to jump in and help as much as I can, you know, and I know, and in particular, the organization was, was facing some, some, um, some hurdles they needed to get over. And I knew that's like, that's all I'll do. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw myself into that at, at a point where it's like, I really do need to devote as much time as possible to, you know, uh, providing, uh, you know, work to Nolan Hyman and solidifying those relationships. And so I did make the decision to, to step away but i'm still in contact with a number of board members and i'm always thinking about great things that you know i can do or people i'm connected with can do for the organization because I, I feel very strongly about um their their ability to succeed and helping them succeed because mm -hmm. at, at bottom it provides uh educational emotional and social support for kids you know, through schooling, uh, you know, for kids who are in economically, you know, under-resourced schools. Right. Uh, it's a great platform. Um, and I was curious, I saw that you're um, uh, an advisor to Machinify. Is that uh, one of your clients? Yeah, well, n not any longer. Um, okay. So, um, Machinify is an AI company, and yeah. Um, yeah, from time to time, I've done some advising for them. Um, and it's, I haven't worked with them in, in a bit, but so they're an AI company uh, that was founded by a guy named Tony Morans, who had founded Voodoo, and that Voodoo was yeah. one of the you know, original digital streaming companies. Yep, absolutely. And so Tony and I have maintained a great relationship over the years, and so it was really fun to kind of you know, do, do some, some business modeling and, you know, stuff with them. Yeah. Excellent. Well, now you uh, have set your sights on uh, podcasting. 
Yes, I have. <laughs> Share with us about that idea. Yeah. So the name of the podcast is Broadsided. Great name, and, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it is geared to women in senior executive roles. So you could be a you know a young person in a senior executive role, right? It's not it's not so much age as it is responsibility. Um, so geared at, at these women who are in these senior executive roles and all these are people who have you know kind of made it through the glass ceiling right yeah. um, and once you're there all of a sudden things kind of change in that it's it's somehow it becomes harder for you to keep on succeeding the rules mm -hmm. have changed there's a little more intrigue there there are things going on that are you know that broadside you and can knock you off your career path or you know give you some some un, unpleasant insights you know so what we're trying to do is have a very uh thoughtful engaging and entertaining conversation about some of those broadsides you know how they can how they can manifest and i'll be talking with a woman uh this thursday and I said, you know, as we start up, we say, we want you to kind of think about your broadsides, the people we're interviewing, think about these so that we can get into them. And she just told, she's like, oh yeah, you know, when I was first starting out, I wasn't a senior executive, you know, but I, I'm starting out in a law firm and people said to me, yeah, you know, you just don't look like you'll be good at this. <laughs> you know, wow. and like, discouraged her from being this is this is an african-american woman you know like <sighs> yeah it's it's insane you know like who does that to people like you just like you don't look like a lawyer and you don't look like you'd be very good at this so and she she was saying you know i wasn't a senior executive but it's like when you you've been through law school you're starting in a senior at a senior level you know you are not you know washing dishes in a restaurant you know, and working your way up through management. You're kind of like, you're starting at, at this level that is, um, you know, a little higher. So anyway, we'll talk about that. And it, it, it can be, you know, how you were discouraged. It can be things from the little things like uh, senior executive men telling you what you should wear at the office and going like, what? how do you get to make the rules over this? And, you know, these little things to the, you know, biggest things like, um, you know, not getting a promotion, not getting a role that you are eminently qualified for, um, you know, and, and the maneuvering that takes place uh, to kind of push you aside, you know. So look, when, when the Fortune 500 has, uh, for the last five, six years, hovered between like four and 6% female CEOs, mm. It's like, it's not, it's not an accident. Like there are things going on. There's a lot of unconscious bias and there's a lot of kind of maneuvering uh, to broadside women out of these, these uh, positions. So, you know, we, we hope to talk about the little things as well as the big things and, you know, have an honest conversation that includes men that, that is, you know, informative and, and entertaining as well. And just kind of tell the truth about these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Gosh, you know, as a father of a daughter, it's um, depressing to hear what you're sharing. And it's, I'm not oblivious to it. I've clearly seen that happen with colleagues and, and people I've known. 
Um, but that's why your work is so important here. It's, um, and then I love the very gentle way in which you're kind of uh, uh, putting a floodlight on the behavior so that people can become aware of them and hopefully not exercise those. But uh, that's the fervent hope. Yeah, that is the fervent hope. And, and again, you know, we want this to include men because, you know, like I said, at the top of our conversation, you know, I worked for a very, you know, supportive man. And mm -hmm. there are plenty of them out there. And yeah, there are plenty yeah. of them who would be like, why, what are you doing? You know, yeah, yeah. so it, it is, we want to have this um, really inclusive conversation about what's going on and just kind of like, okay, we, you know, we can all do better. You did mention my, my daughters, right? And they are now, you know, they're adults and they're out on their own. Um, and I have a husband, as you know, and he has been very supportive in my career. Um, but a lot of times women will, will come to these kind of like rock and a hard place places where it's like, you know, my kids need this, my job needs that. And and all I would say is, and, and I worked their entire lives, and all I would say to women in particular um, who are dealing with that rock in the hard place thing, um, make the decision that's right for you. You know, don't listen to whatever the popular, you know, conventional wisdom is, because any choice you make society will tell you is a trade-off, but guess what? Any choice you make is a trade-off. Yes. You just have to make the one that's right for you. Absolutely. And, and you know, go easy on yourself when it comes to the guilt, because, you know, it's, it's not gonna do anything productive for your kids, you know? Um, well and then in that vein, I always said, like, if I found that my kids weren't thriving, mm. I would change it up, you know? But um, if they were thriving and everything was okay, I would keep working, you know? And I think I, I did make one particular job move at a point where I was like, this is not working for me anymore. And the, the thing I couldn't abide was, <clears throat> excuse me, the concept in my own head that I would keep doing this thing that I didn't like. And the message I might be sending to my kids was that it was better than staying home with you. And that I couldn't wow, do. Wow. Yeah, that I couldn't That's do. That's potent, Christina. Yeah. Uh, never heard it framed quite that way that's really wow okay i knew i liked working but it's like yeah. i couldn't work there and and have it be so miserable you know well, that's great modeling i actually thought where you were going with that is just modeling that you should work but you should do the work that makes you happy um the way you described it is really empathic and really thoughtful yeah yeah, job, yeah. Mom. i want them to know that they are the most <laughs> important things in you know our lives my husband's and, and my life and um you know i think when you're doing something that that is creating you know some disharmony it shows yeah no, i didn't absolutely. want them to think you know wow well she could be home and she'd be happy and <laughs> so Excuse but me. but again you know you have to make those decisions that are right for you and yes parents you know give yourself a break on the guilt <laughs> Excellent, excellent advice. Christine, this has been such an amazing conversation. Really, it was wonderful chatting with you. Good to see you. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.